Welcome to episode six of the podcast, How Public Works. I'm your host, Ilmar Simonovskis, and today we are with Michelle Billick from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, which leads a national movement of individuals, organizations, and communities working together to end homelessness in Canada. Their vision is that all Canadians have a safe, decent, and affordable home with the support necessary to sustain it, and their mission is to prevent and end homelessness in Canada. Michelle is a longtime community advocate and activist for a socially responsible society. She dedicates her time on a number of local organizations centering on poverty reduction, homelessness, diversity, equity and inclusion, violence against women, and food security. She has been a high school teacher, psychosocial educator on oncology and geriatrics, trainer and facilitator on diversity, equity and inclusion, and she has also been a political candidate in six election campaigns. Michelle has received her education in psychology and sociology from McMaster and in women's studies and gender studies from University of York. Michelle believes that a better way can be achieved by creating a society based on inclusion, fairness, and equity for all, approaching society with empathy and understanding, and caring for Mother Earth with management for sustainability. It is a matter of choice, and with that, one in three have or intimately know someone who has experienced homelessness, which is what today's topic is about. Welcome, Michelle. Oh, thank you, Omar, for having me. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So can you tell us about the origins and main activities of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness? Sure. Um, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness like you mentioned, is a, a national organization, a not-for-profit organization with a main goal to help support communities, also advocate and, you know, work towards improving policy uh, around housing and um, housing instability. So the organization started uh, back in 2013, I believe. The executive director and also founder is Tim Richter. And he started by creating sort of this uh, national movement called uh, the Canadian National Housing and Homelessness um, Summit. And it's now become sort of this national conference. It's a sort of key conference on all things housing and homelessness in Canada. Um, and he really wanted to sort of also create uh, an, an entity that, you know, government and policymakers would come to um, in order when, well, basically when they're going to be creating policy, um, you know, to look at us as experts in the field and working with communities on the ground and utilize uh, the data that, that we're, we're able to obtain from communities in order, again, to advocate and, and change policy. So it started off only with two individuals, but now there's a team of 15 of us. Um, we do everything from uh, training and best practices on the ground in communities around housing first, around what's called a coordinated access approach to care and various other best practices like harm reduction and uh, integration into community life. Um, we also have a program called Built for Zero, and that program is a real sort of intense uh, data-focused uh, program that we work with uh, 37 communities across Canada, helping them uh, collect data on homeless individuals and be able to utilize that data and information 
um, in order to obviously reduce um, the inflow of homeless individuals and also, you know, focus the communities on um, housing people <laughs> as a priority, right? And doing innovative approaches to doing so. And then the work that I do in particular is more along the advocacy um, and policy stream of the Canadian Alliance. So I work with these arm's length entities called our allied networks, and uh, they are more or less focused on various different objectives. And I support them on the ground doing the work. But a lot of, again, our work is advocating our, our local, our municipal, our provincial and our federal ministers to change policy. So that's what I do. Well, clearly you have a lot of passion for this organization. Can you share with us why you got involved and what, you know, what brought you to this place? Mm-hmm. So my, my connection with the Canadian Alliance is it's quite, quite an interesting story, is that when they were starting their national conferences, what was really great about the organization is that they would try to sort of sponsor and provide scholarships to persons with lived experience to attend the conference. And at the beginning, they had sort of like siphoned off a certain portion of their funding in order to support people to come to the conference and they paid their way they provided them with all their accommodations and it gave them an opportunity to really sort of uh, provide that lived experience approach to um, you know people who attended and organizations and at sessions and um, so back in 2013 I was sort of paying paying attention to, to what the organization was doing, applied as a person with experience because I have been homeless numerous times in my past. It gave me the opportunity to meet leaders across Canada, politicians, um, people, you know, that are academics in the field, doing research, as well as program and service managers, and apply that lived experience lens um, to the work that they're doing. From that point further, um, the Canadian Alliance also started sort of um, a pilot project called the 20,000 Homes Campaign, which then became the Built for Zero project. And that was around collecting data, um, collecting persons uh, who are experiencing homelessness by name and getting like larger demographics on them. And so, and then the community would sort of go on like a two or three day stint where they would meet people on the streets and places where they are and ask them to fill out a survey, get the information on them as they consented. And then we created what's called the by name list. So I got the region appeal where I live here and it's just outside of Toronto. With that experience, um, you know, what was it about your, your personal experience that really, you know, really motivated you? Yeah, I know it does for sure. I mean, when I was growing up, um, you know, I was—I think I was the first time I experienced homelessness. I think it was eight, eight years old. Between six and eight years old, we were in and out of a couple of women's shelters because of uh, domestic violence in my family and alcohol addiction. And I think really what I ended up sort of feeling is that time is. Time, time is not is it's cyclical. I found that I was able to be bounce back and be quite resilient from from really young age, and that having a house, having a family, 
some of these things can come and go in your life and that you have to be sort of resilient and just sort of take every day as it comes. Um, you know, then my family, we, my mom had a business and we lost our business. We lost our house when I was actually just about to go to university. And then I ended up spending about a year and a half just in my car because I had absolutely nowhere else to go. And I was still trying to complete school, um, you know, sleeping in the car and utilizing Tim Hortons, you know, for bathrooms and the school campus to freshen up you know, with my clothes loaded in garbage bags in the back of my car. And at, at the time, I would have to say, I don't, I don't really remember saying, hmm, you know, I wonder if there's programs and services out there to support me and my family at this time. It, it wasn't even, I just wasn't thinking about it. And, you know, here I am, you know, and then I was an adult and I also experienced homelessness again. And I was a lot more sort of uh, aware of what was going on in the community. But, you know, I think as I got older and, you know, I got my life back on track and found myself in a position which I would consider privileged, um, that I had family and friends around me, that I do have a roof over my head, that I was able to get and get myself um, on my feet, which isn't always easy for people, um, that I was able to sort of utilize my experiences and change sort of... Um, what is out there, what people are aware of, um, get them in touch with programs and services that can support them. Um, you know, I, I didn't know that there was programs and services available for people who are struggling, you know, to make ends meet, to, to pay their rent, um, you know, food, food banks, um, you know, various other programs and services that are, that are out there that can help people before they actually become homeless right? And help them through that journey to get themselves back on track. Um, so I think that, yeah, certainly my lived experience of homelessness. Now, mind you, I look at other people and, you know, the trauma that they've experienced in their lives. And I think, wow, you know, you know, what I've experienced is just a drop in the bucket from what other people experience. But it also has given me a huge, you know, motivation to end homelessness because it can, it can and should be possible. You know, we live in one of the richest countries in the world. It's, you know, housing to me, I consider it a human right, not a commodity. And so this is sort of my way of giving back, um, you know, and, and there's also like, again, a lot of stigma around it. I remember, Omar, I was, you know, running in the election, I think in 2008 when I first ran and people were like homelessness, like on poverty people. The people in my community aren't experiencing homelessness. You know, we had the mayor of Mississauga sitting there saying there was no such thing. And I'm like, I'm like, lady, walk down the street. You know what? People are sleeping in the back of their cars or in the back of those, you know, 18 wheeler rigs. You know, people are sleeping in the park. And so um, what I've done in my communities have brought a lot more tension and, um, and light to the issues. And that really it isn't an issue that's, should be stigmatized that this, this, anyone at any given moment can be homeless. And I think you mentioned that, right? I think when we were having uh, our conversation last week, you were mentioning that really homelessness, yeah, the stigmatization of it definitely is a problem because it's always somebody else. But, you know, your description of it, you know, you're a normal person that just had some circumstances that just resulted in some unfortunate moments in your life. And how do you, how do you see breaking that divide? Because, you know, like you, so you have an awareness, you see the world differently because now you have a new lens to look at 
at sort of this side of, of you know, some unfortunate circumstances. How do you help those like the mayor, you know, that uh, like that campaign you described where people might not even acknowledge that it exists? Because that's a huge, that, that requires a huge personal shift for people to actually recognize and see what's in front of them. Mm-hmm. I think amplifying lived voices around homelessness and folks that experience homelessness is really important. Um, and ensuring, you know, whether it's in, in poverty reduction, whatever, the, whatever the, the, you know, whether it's housing, whether it's homelessness, childcare, whatever, I think it's really important that our policymakers listen to people who have experienced these things, right, when they're creating. So start from a sort of a person-centered approach to creating policy. But, um, you know, the stigmatization around homelessness, it, it's, it's going to stick. You know, people automatically believe that all folks living on the street have mental health or addictions problems, which in and of itself it means that we have a health crisis, right? So homelessness crisis is a health crisis. That's really what it tells me. Um, but second of all, more and more we see, um, you know, young families experiencing homelessness, women fleeing violence with their children, experiencing homelessness. And and all it really takes, Ilmar, is, you know, the facts, stay, you know, they, they speak clearly and loudly that most people are one paycheck away from not making ends meet. And what that tells me is all it takes is someone to lose their job, like my mom did. All it takes was someone, you know, who, who possibly is the, the main provider financially in the family to get sick or pass away. You know, we see a lot of a lot of single women, senior women um, that are experiencing homelessness. That's also, you know, very common and a trend. But, you know, this the homeless individuals can be your brother, they can be your sister, they can be your aunt, your uncle, your best friend, your grandmother, your grandfather. So, you know, this whole idea that it's yeah, someone else, someone else's problem that these individuals are just addicts and you know have mental health issues and we shouldn't give a care about them that they should just lift their feet up and that they're all just on welfare i think is is a bunch of baloney <laughs> that you know there there is a such thing in society as a social contract that we have with each other that if we are community we care for each other and that means helping out the most vulnerable when we can that means giving back when we can despite how little we have and we you know, it's it's time that we sort of revisit that sort of social uh, contract that we have with society and remember that at any given moment, that could be us. Yes. So with that social contract, um, I saw on your on your site a news release of July 2020 this summer, which describes the action plan from the report called Recovery for All proposals to strengthen the national housing strategy mm-hmm. and end homelessness. So this report outlines a six-point plan that can lead to solving homelessness by 2030. And the author, Steve Pomeray, states that recovery for all is an action plan for an affordable, purposeful, and meaningful process to end homelessness. So tell us more about this. I mean, I think this is clearly a big part of your focus going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, you know, like I mentioned, I think that a lot of our work has sort of shifted, not, I think, to the importance of how, you know, we as an organization can actually, actually impact uh, policy. And, and so, yes, I mean, you know, when we say that we want to end homelessness for all once and for all, and, you know, we're looking at sort of a post-COVID recovery 
model and what that exactly looks like. Um, you know, we came up with this six-point plan that actually provides really the roadmap for a federal government to imp implement policies that will eradicate homelessness by 2030, but also, funny enough, create jobs and save some money too. So, you know, it really what they've, you know, we've, we've been advocating with the federal government uh, on many things. I mean, the national housing strategy in and of itself, that was passed within the 2018 budget. And that had a lot to do with the advocacy that our organization, um, you know, sort of, you know, pressured uh, the federal government to create a national housing strategy. And that has thoroughly, thoroughly helped communities um, do what they need to do uh, in order to really stay focused on housing folks instead of focusing on managing homelessness. But what we also need, though, is we need our federal and provincial counterparts, mind you, to step up to the plate when it comes to retaking um, that space around providing actual physical housing structures, right? Creating affordable housing again. And it's, you know, long time, you know, we're talking 30 to 50 years of the lack of oversight uh, by our federal and provincial governments, like, you know, taking a more hands-off market approach to housing, um, letting the, you know, the market players uh, financialize housing instead of it, it being seen as a human right. Um, and not really investing in affordable housing at all for our communities. And here we are, you know, it's sort of the perfect sort of tsunami going on where we have, you know, you know, retirement REITs and we have, um, you know, financial asset management firms that own swaths and swaths of properties in our largest cities throughout the global world. And governments have just allowed it to happen. But the problem is, is that now, you know, in, in major cities such as such as ours, there isn't any land to buy up. Right. So it's almost like now, you know, our governments are going ding, ding, ding. You know what? Maybe it's about time we start, you know, investing and committing to into constructing new permanent affordable housing and, and also like, you know, rental housing, affordable rental housing for people too. So, you know, our six point plan um, talks about uh, prevention and elimination of homelessness. So we talk about universal basic income of some sort for people or a guaranteed minimum income for people. We're talking about constructing at least 300,000 new uh, permanent affordable and supportive housing units for people. So that's double what the federal government proposed before in the national housing strategy. We're also talking about um, the meaningful implementation of right to housing. And, um, you know, in the national housing strategy, they also mentioned that we would have a structure in place for people, everyday people to tackle and actually, you know, advocate against our government around sort of inequalities and systemic and structural issues around housing for people. So, you know, this avenue, you know, an right to housing sort of structure, what it will do is give people the autonomy to bring forward cases to our federal government and say, hey, you know what, I'm experiencing whether it's racism or some sort of systemic or structural inequality in, in being able to find housing in my community and I need you to do something about it. And it's putting the onus on government to provide that for them, right? 
And then we also talk about tackling financialization of housing as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask you then around the, around the six point plan, um, you know, I mean, housing shortage or, or at least affordable housing has been a topic uh, of debate, you know, provincially, federally, locally for, for forever. What do you feel is the difference in this plan or the sort of the, um, the pivot that, that you're bringing forward to the federal government and, and why has, previous plans or previous initiatives never really taken traction? Like what, what do you see as this continuous stumbling block and how do you hope to overcome that with this six point plan? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a really good question. And what I'd like to think is that they, the government is turning to us because we have our pulse on the ground, because we are dealing with people um, who are who have who have lived expertise in homelessness? We are dealing with communities and organizations on the ground that are providing supports to people. We are the experts when it comes to all things homelessness. So if they want to see see an end to homelessness, of course they're going to come to 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 our organization because we have all the data, we have all the tools. We we you know we are providing them, like I said, with this roadmap, which is fiscally responsible, but also socially responsible, right? And so to me, you know, I see that it's a win-win situation. You know, it's if if they decide, and it is, it is about choice, policy is always about choice. If they decide that, you know, they'll invest now and they really are committed to ending homelessness, it doesn't take much. It really doesn't take much. We see billions and billions and billions of dollars being rolled out, you know, and uh, with, you know, really no success. But what we're giving the government is saying, here, here you go. This is this is what, what you need to do. And if you're committed to ending homelessness in Canada, then just follow through on these simple steps. And not only that, your our plan is, is going to save you and taxpayers, Canadian taxpayers money in the end, right? And uh, provide and provide the, the much needed foundation for affordable housing in communities. So yeah, it's to me, it's just, you know, the f- most fiscal and socially responsible thing to do. Yeah. And how uh, have you been able to activate the community, you know, the, the, the community at large, whether it's within Ontario or across Canada, with as your organization is focusing? What are you asking of the community to help support this plan and to communicate that need at the political level? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so just like any other campaign, what we decided to do was, you know, you was build membership, right? Take up, take up ownership of space, get the information out there, tell people about the six point plan, get them to buy in on the six point plan. And, and honestly, we have uh, support and endorsements from individuals and hundreds and hundreds of, of individuals and organizations across Canada who, you know, their main focus may be poverty or their main focus may be on, uh, you know, in indigenous programs and services. Their focus may be in the, not, you know, in, in some other form for not-for-profit, but in the end, you know, uh, you know, providing, providing them with the ability to do advocacy on their own. So we had like, you know, massive, letter writing campaigns, you know, to our federal, provincial and municipal partners in communities. Um, you know, we've put in the inbox of our federal government over 300,000 <laughs> letters 
from RF recovery for all supporters. So, I mean, they can't ignore that, right? You know, when, when it's normal everyday people who are willing to endorse and sign on to a campaign and send letters to their members of parliament saying, hey, wake up, smell the coffee. This is an important issue to me and I really want to help um, end homelessness in Canada. They can't ignore it. It really is. It's, it's from the people. Yeah. And what do you feel the federal government's um, line of sight is on this? You know, where, where do you think they are and how do you think it'll come into the budget process or the program prioritization process? Mm-hmm. I, that's a really good question. And I'm going to be completely optimistic. I think that we've been really successful in advocating uh, around housing and home, housing precarity, homelessness and poverty through this, through the Recovery for All campaign. I think my sense, and this is what I'm hearing from the ground, is that we probably will see some sort of form, form of basic minimum income for people. Um, and that would be essentially sort of um, an injection of money to help support people, um, even, you know, getting off of CERB for people who, you know, might not qualify for employment insurance. Um, And so I do think that that will happen. I do also think that there's going to be the implementation of an urban and rural Indigenous housing and homelessness strategy as well, because we know by far across Canada, Indigenous peoples are disproportionately affected by housing precarity and homelessness in Canada. So we really do need a focused approach um, from from a sort of Indigenous uh, and decolonization lens around this. But I definitely know that we're going to see some investment in permanent affordable and supportive housing units as well, I think, as enhanced rental support for for people. So I do think that um, it's made an impact. Now, you know, this government has many priorities. I think also what we're going to see, and this will also impact um, people experiencing housing precarity and poverty. I think we're going to see a universal childcare program. I think we're going to see a universal pharmacare as well. So I think when you really compound well, this whole huge, again, you know, I talked about that social contract, right? And that social safety net for people who need it and, and who need it at certain times in their life. What it will do is actually pre- prevent homelessness, right? Because when people can't afford a place, place to live in, they have to make decisions between paying their rent or for food or for childcare or for medication, that decision becomes really difficult, right? So um, I'm optimistic, and I'm and I'm and I'm not being I'm not being in any way partisan because I try not to be in my position at all. But I support any government who will do the right thing, and any government that will put in place policy to help people, because that's what it comes down to: is people people over profit. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't care how in debt our country gets. I think that we need to support each other because unless people have the means in, to contribute back to society, we, you know, we will never be able to, to fiscally be able to be in a good place, right? If we have everyone taken care of and everybody able to contribute, then it'll only benefit all of us, right? So it just makes a lot of sense. 
you know. Um, so I'm more than grateful if this government invests even more in the social safety nets for people. And, and and you've talked a little bit about sort of our indigenous communities and the indigenous housing challenges. Can you can you describe sort of your views on that? And and really because you're representing sort of the national state of housing, uh, you know, here in Ontario, especially in the GTA, you know, indigenous housing challenges, although they're present or they're somewhat visible, I think we represent a very small. Uh, percentage of sort of the, these communities across Canada. Um, so can you speak more to that that challenge mm-hmm. and what that looks like across from east to west? Yeah, I think that, you know, even our organization in and of itself really is sort of struggling because we are, <laughs> we are sort of a colonial settler colonized entity, right? Homelessness is something that has come through, you know, colonization right and unfortunately you know with the disposition dispossession of of lands from indigenous people you know we're looking at the 60s scoop we're looking at um you know various other policy atrocious policy measures by our federal government over time um, you know, whether it's through, you know, the residential school system or various other means to, you know, what would I you know, eradicate, I guess, yeah. our Indigenous people throughout Canada. It's no wonder that, you know, through generations and generations of trauma that they have been those that have been most targeted for um, racist acts and colonial acts and um, you know, as a, I think as, as a result, as a, as a country, not just as like a homelessness sector in general, is finally coming to grips with understanding really what it means around land ownership, around housing, around homelessness from an Indigenous worldview. And it's very different because Indigenous people see homelessness as, as not only losing a physical structure, like a house, okay, like a roof over their head, but they see it as um, losing their connection to their community, their connection to their relationship with the land, their relationship with people within their own clan, their relationship with creator, their their relationship with each other, right? Yes. And so they define homelessness very differently than we do, right? That, that than Western white folks do, right? Than colonial settlers view. And so, you know, how, what we consider, and when we're talking about indigenous homelessness and providing indigenous communities with um, housing and a housing strategy, it's about going to the people, right? It's going to to indigenous people and saying, what do you see in housing? And that housing may look totally different from ours. It may be more communal, right? It right. may be having on-site ceremonial uh, aspects that, you know what I mean? So that they can do power, so that they can do smudging, so that they can, you know, have, you know, have the ability to, you know, learn their language, learn their traditions, and live in a more communal setting. I, and in the end, it's up to it's it's up to indigenous people to decide. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know we as Canadians, white colonial settlers, have colonized 
and dispossess these people from their lands. And I think, you know, it, I don't know when or if ever the Canadian government will, you know, ha- just here you go, hand over the land and give it back. It probably won't happen. But what we can do instead is create policies and give people the autonomy and, and the funding, you know, the experts, the people with lived experience to actually, you know, create the type of housing um, that they need and support the homeless individuals they need in their own community, right? Like, yeah. it's not about me or, or us or the Canadian Alliance telling, you know, people how they, how they can and should uh, live. But what we can do is we can advocate and support and um, amplify the voices of Indigenous voices uh, to give them the equal funding that they need. And it's not just funding around housing, it's health care, it's child care, it's education. You know what I mean? It's, it's everything. Yeah. yeah, it's like a microcosm of our national issue, but with much more complex and much more, yeah, much more deeper traumatic experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, with with um, with homelessness in general, and especially you know with COVID becoming part of the national and you know global global discussion, we have we have this this sense of a vulnerable sector within our communities. And what's your view on how COVID has really targeted vulnerable people to be even more vulnerable? Like where where's where does this lie, and how does how has COVID maybe also spurred the federal government to be a little more sensitive, a little more uh, open to uh, bigger solutions. Uh, yeah, I think honestly, when you're, I think what, what has happened is, it, I think at the beginning people were like, oh wow, COVID's affecting everybody, right? Um, but it doesn't affect everybody proportionally the same, right? And we're obviously noticing that, that, you know, that COVID has a racial face, that COVID has an age face, right? And COVID also has um, a housing and housing stability phase two to it, right? So, I mean, you're telling people, you know, to stay home, right? And some people don't have homes, right? Some people are living in congregate settings. Some people like women, you know, in domestic violence situations can't flee their house. They have nowhere to go, you know what I mean? So they're choosing between staying in a violent relationship or, or what, or nothing, right? Um, but what has COVID has done is brought to light that con- congregate settings are are also and you know a means for obviously transmission um, that they're not particularly maybe um, paid attention to enough um, that there aren't the health health sort of um, precautions in place in order to support people who live really really close together so. Um, I have to say that, you know, if we were to compare like homelessness and long-term care, I think they, you know, they both sort of had the same sort of issues going on. You have people living in close proximity to each other without appropriate health supports in place. But the difference in the, in the homelessness sector, and I have to say, um, I have to pat pat the backs of all of our frontline workers our housing and homelessness workers, our shelter workers, our, our community leaders who invested from the get-go of COVID to reduce capacity in shelters, to provide other means of housing, so put people in hotels, to provide a three-tier approach. So if you know they were doing universal testing in shelters and people 
who lived in shelters, you know, they were right away, you know, creating sort of, um, uh, you know, testing sites and um, also, you know, containment sites for folks. So it was the hard work of the front lines and the communities that really put us in a place where, you know, we can look back and say, hey, you know what? We, our, our homeless service sector is lucky that we didn't have massive outbreaks. But that's always, that's because of the frontline workers. But I have to give a pat on the back to our federal government because the first wave of funding that came through in late March, a whole swath of federal dollars and provincial dollars went to uh, the homelessness and housing sector. So, um, you know, kudos to them. And, you know, thank God we didn't see the outbreaks that were possible. But this, you know, this, you know, isn't the end of COVID-19 by any means. You know, our our service sectors are still running at half capacity. There are still people in hotels. So what have communities been doing? They've been knowing that, okay, they're not going to go back to the way things were. So we have to start housing people. So we've also seen during COVID something interestingly enough happen is that it's put such pressure on the sector that they said, you know what, let's house them by any means. And so it's actually been happening. Well, and it's interesting because in the in the general media, especially through the summer with you know COVID being a central topic, it was all senior centers and, and uh, retirement homes and those kind of communal settings, but very little conversation in the in the in the media about homelessness and the impacts in that sector. So it's really interesting. Again, another another lens of stigmatization, maybe unconsciously, but but very real. Yeah, for sure. That's what it comes down to, right? I mean. Yeah, people don't care <laughs> as much about homeless people, right? You know, and, and quite frankly, like I said, I think we have to change the face of homelessness. And I think that that has a lot to do with, I guess, you know, public relations and getting getting the word out there that it's just, it affects everybody. Um, but what we, what we have seen, I think, um, which I think is sort of really important, is that we've seen an upswing in overdoses, right? So now we have COVID going on, right? We have homeless folks who are experiencing, you know, addiction problems, but we've also seen a massive upswing in in opioid deaths as well um, during the COVID crisis because folks weren't weren't able to get out, people weren't able to get um, the appropriate drugs they need. And um, yeah, so, that at least brought some attention, I think. And then what we've also seen is that we've have had an increase because it's summer of encampments. So people aren't staying in the shelters because they're worried about COVID, but instead they're staying in encampments. So we've seen encampments grow like astronomically throughout Canada right now. Yes. Um, folks aren't staying in, in hotels. Folks aren't staying in shelters. They're sleeping in the park instead. Right. Yeah. So we're seeing sort of like a different dynamic to this crisis um, that actually we haven't really, really dealt with before. And so we're still trying to get in a sense of how to deal with encampments, how to get help communities, so how to, like and support communities and to support people who are living in encampments. Right. Because just because they don't have a roof over their head doesn't mean that they shouldn't 
they don't have, you know, that they don't have the right to proper health care, proper hygiene, bathrooms, you know, um, simple everyday things like, you know, we can, these individuals are walking the streets every day. People who are experiencing homelessness, you know, are just trying to survive every day. And, you know, if that, if that means, you know, sleeping on a park bench or in a park, then they'll have, they'll do it. Right. But at the same time, they're also still interacting with the community. Right. So can I ask you with, um, you know, with that notion of the, you know, the pop-up, the pop-up tent cities and, you know, that whole shift and then, you know, looking at the sort of the landlord tenant relationship, because, as you were describing, especially with you know jobless rates increasing because of COVID shutdown, how how has the landlord tenant relationship changed, or you know what what do you see in that sphere? Well, my thoughts around it because it's this has sort of been ongoing, right? So here we are, met, you know, we have millions of Canadians out of work, millions of Canadians normal everyday Canadians, and I'll just say normal because this is what we, this is what we say, right? So people who would normally pay their rent, people who would normally pay their mortgage, not being able to, for, you know, the first time sometimes in their life, be in a situation where they just don't have any income coming in. And, you know, so we had supports through our, you know, banks with respects to mortgages, but then we also had eviction moratoriums going on in cities throughout the country, right? Where for, I would say, you know, three or four months there, you know, they basically banned evicting people, which I think was the appropriate thing to do. So now, you know, most, (laughs) as the economies, you know, have started to open up, our governments have lifted the moratorium ban and expecting people to pay their back arrears. Um, in some cases, it may be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars uh, back to their landlords or face eviction. And, you know, in Ontario specifically, that issue is compounded with a new bill that, 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 the, that the provincial government just passed called Bill 184. And that makes changes to the Landlord-Tenant Act, actually making it easier for a landlord to evict people without even a hearing. So, you know, what we're, what we're actually going to end up seeing, because it's a process, right, that it takes about two to three months to get someone evicted, what we will be seeing as we head into the winter months is folks not being able to pay their back arrears or rent in particular because we are half capacity in this economy, right? You know, not everybody is back to work yet. And if they are back to work, it might not be a full-time job, right? Right. So what we are going to see is people that are going to be defaulting on their mortgages, people that are going to be not be able to to pay their arrears um, in their rent, and we're going to see people evicted or we're going to see people lose their house and we're going to see a swath or again, using the word tsunami of folks, you know, throughout Canada who are for the very first time going to experience experience homelessness. And it's our communities who are going to have to do the heavy lifting to support these people. And quite frankly, we don't have the resources. Our resources on the ground in municipalities are already stretched. And our federal government and provincial government has to stand up and be able to support people 
who are experiencing this because you know what? The last thing we need is to be heading into the Christmas holidays and have numerous people with nowhere to go. Like I can't even, it's just, it makes my stomach turn to think that, you know, like I don't know where these people are going to go. I really don't, Ilmar, and it, it scares me to death. It really scares me to death. Yeah, I can I can totally appreciate that, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, again, it goes back to you know what we perceive as that normal middle class where everybody just bounces back and life goes on. But there's a very very large sector of the population that's going to experience this recovery very differently, for sure. With that, I just want to touch on you know sort of the provincial, regional, and maybe local government perspectives as as this podcast really focuses on that bridge between local government and our community. Can you speak a little bit to your experiences, expectations, and maybe even some successes and challenges with regional and local governments in this in this particular topic? Well, I did I did talk a bit earlier about you know sort of what has happened during COVID is that we saw communities being able to step up even here in the region of Peel, you know, we've housed, oh my goodness, I think well over, over 200 people <laughs> during this crisis, right? Okay. We have about like in, in the shelter system, we have about a thousand people, but we've been able to well over two or 300 people we've been able to house. Now that wouldn't have happened under normal circumstances. So I scratch my head and say, okay, so what's, what's changed, right? Well, what has changed is that, is that communities have stopped with, you know, the bureaucracy, right? And have pulled out every string, have pulled out every sort of idea, have formed amazing relationships with, with private and public landlords in the community, have, you know, really, really listened to the program and service providers have formed tremendous relationships with um, the health sector, public health in their communities. Um, so those are all success stories, right? Is where we've seen collaboration like I've never seen before cross-sectorally in communities, right? And, and really, really keenly focused on getting people housed because the new normal is not going back to the to the old normal, which was, you know, managing homelessness, not solving it, right? Yeah. So um, that has been what has been tremendous, I think. And, you know, I think it's been with the funding that has come from our federal and provincial governments to be able to provide, you know, the, the supports and, and the rent supplements and, um, you know, other sort of, you know, measurements you know, to prevent homelessness as well, that um, communities have been able to step up and do it on their own. Now, you got to remember, though, too, too, Omar, is that, you know, funding only goes so far. And, you know, if COVID continues, you know, throughout the spring, or say we get, you know, God forbid, we get a second wave, you know, I, I'm, I don't know, like I said, I think our, our program services are burnt out, uh, people are burnt out on the front lines. We've sort of, you know, utilized all the funding that has come in already. Um, you know, wh- what else can communities do other than, um, you know, really try to get people stabilized on their own? And and, and really that is the solution because once people are housed and you're able to keep them housed, you're saving so much money on, you know, not having to provide a hotel room for them, take for example, right? or, you know, a shelter space for them, for example, right? All of that costs more money. 
And so, you know, in, in the end, I think communities have been doing what they need to do, and that's focus on housing people and keeping them housed. I just hope, hope to God that, um, yeah, I just hope that, you know, this sort of momentum continues um, and that we don't see a second wave of COVID. This has been a wonderful conversation, Michelle, and, and I just want to give you one last opportunity. If, if you had a call to action to the community, to this listening audience, to our politicians, to the governments, what would be your call to action? Yeah, certainly to community members. Um, you know, what I've mentioned before is that we have a responsibility to each and every person who lives in our community whether they're homeless, whether they're poor, whether, you know, they are starving, um, whether they're uneducated, whether they have mental health issues, whether they have a disability, we have responsibility to look out for each other and support each other and uplift them. So we have to eliminate that stigmatization around homeless individuals, people with addictions. Like it's, it's about time that we just start caring for each other. Um, that's what I'd like to tell community members. What I'd like to tell politicians is that, yes, convincingly, you know that that homelessness can be eradicated, that it's the most fiscally and socially responsible thing to do, and that investing in people and the things that people need over profits, right, will actually serve the community better, right? I mean, when you have individuals who are stably housed, individuals who can afford good food, individuals who can afford good education and, um, you know, affordable and accessible childcare and, you know, be able to contribute back to society, then we have a community working in harmony. When we have individuals who are left behind, when we have individuals who are, who unfortunately end up burdening the system, then we have something wrong, right? So to me, an investment in, in people, right? No matter what it takes, especially around the, especially around housing, because housing, housing really is the social determinant of all other forms of health and well-being. If a person has has housing and stable, appropriate housing, then everything else works in harmony. So, you know, investments in housing is really an investment in community and it's investment in livelihoods. So to me, it's, like I said, a win-win situation. So I would tell, you know, any politician right off the bat that if you're gonna invest anywhere in community, invest in housing. Um, and provide that human right for people. Excellent. Michelle, thank you so much for this interview. I really enjoyed our conversation and you brought some really, really good points forward. And I'm hopeful that this is going to be uh, another tool for you in this, this fight to, 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 to equal housing for everybody. And I want to thank you for uh, being part of this. Oh, Emma, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been my pleasure.